0: To a friend this week, and he's just sort of saying, look, I'm I'm just a little bit down. You know, everything that's happening over in Gaza, the result of sort of the the referendum and the sort of wider discussion in our nation. You know, there's this deep inequality uh, that doesn't seem to have an obvious solution. There's increasing division, and he's just like, we're just sort of down, and it's like, well, when when is it going to end? And so this this sense of, of how long will these seasons of disappointment and despair is something that sometimes communally we go through, but often it's something that is a, a personal experience, you know. How long is this person who's, who's hurt us so deeply just sort of maintain this happy and prosperous existence? How long will these people who not only ignore God but outwardly mock him and reject him, how long will they just sort of seemingly succeed in everything that they put their hand to, and how long were those who we know in our lives are so deceptive and, and hurtful, who seem to be able to just manipulate things according to their own plan and agenda, how long will they sort of have this free reign to just go living life without any account? Uh, this experience of disappointment and despair, this question of, of how long, God, uh, is this injustice is going to occur, is something that is at the heart of God's people uh, in the time of Zechariah. And uh, just a reminder, as we're hearing the readings from Zechariah and, and reading it during the week, we sort of go, well, why are we reading this book? Uh, it is, on the surface, quite difficult. Uh, it seems a little bit disconnected from our life, but we are reminded that it's an important part of God's revelation. Uh, it's an important in understanding God's wider plan for us and this world. And it is deeply connected uh, with our experiences of seeking to live by faith in God. And so we find uh, Zechariah's generation at a stage in history where things aren't right. Uh, they've been exiled uh, and had returned and expectant of all the, um, I guess, prosperity of the promises that God had delivered through his prophets, that that when they returned to the land, that things would be right. But despite being back in Jerusalem, they're not prosperous. Uh, Their return from exile hadn't sort of resulted in this glorious liberation. Their oppressors, the Persians, they remain in power. And this promise of restoration and full return to God hasn't quite been realised. And so it's in this setting that God speaks to and through Zechariah uh, to his people who are struggling with disappointment where their expectations haven't been met. And uh, one of the parallel prophets, uh, Haggai, gives us a bit of a picture of that in uh, Haggai chapter 1, verse 6. It says of the experience of God's people, they'd planted much but harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is a picture of God's people at that time. It's a picture of disappointment, unrealized expectations. And while certainly there'd been an improvement from being in exile, controlled by the Babylonians, and now they had been invited back by the Persians to at least dwell in Jerusalem, There seems to be a lack of clarity about what the future holds. What are they to do in this current state? Is God going to work out his plan? Do they need to just sort of align themselves with whoever's most powerful in their immediate context? How is God going to realise his promises? And so God's people are wrestling with disappointment... Seeming inequalities, they are experiencing the judgment of God for the sins of their ancestors. But seemingly the Persians who are ruling and reigning as they please are just going about however they like. And so it's in this context of sort of crying out to God how long that our passage today has two visions. It's the first two of eight visions that stretch through to chapter 6 And each of the visions have sort of this pattern. Zechariah, he looks up, he has a vision. He asks an angel, what's going on here? He needs some interpretation. The angel brings an explanation and it rolls into the next vision. Now, the first and last visions of this series of eight, uh, both have this uh, herd of horses that sort of seem to be acting as watchmen, surveying uh, the land. If you sort of think of you know, um, movies where often the king comes on this horse and he's got this entourage and they're assessing the land, they're um, showing their authority. This sort of seems to be the image in Zechariah's first vision. There's, there's an angel riding on a horse and it's surrounded by a wider flock, a herd of horses. And it seems that this horse is a horse that the Lord has sent. And it's an image that expresses this, that God sees what's going on. And so there's a, in verse 9, there's an interpreting angel. And so there's an angel riding one of the horses, but then there's this sort of interpreting, explaining angel, which Zechariah talks to to, to get some understanding of what this vision actually means. And this interpreting angel uh, both uh, speaks and, and shows that this herd of horses is to be a sign that God sees what's going on in the current situation. And now, typically in uh, the Old Testament, horses often sort of bring with it this sense that judgment is going to come, that you know the king going to bring about action. But here we see that the angel says, what the people and the horses are doing are assessing the land. And so there's not going to be some swift action where God's going to fix things. What the horses report is that the world is at peace. And now this is strange because it's not just that God's people are at peace. The expectation through the pre-exilic prophets was when you return from exile, then you will prosper. You will be at peace again. But as the horses survey the land, they see that everyone's experiencing peace and happiness. And so this... Vision and their current reality seems to be a contradiction of what the prophets had said. It's a picture of everyone being at peace, everyone getting along, everyone happy with the status quo. And so the question then for God's people, has the Lord forgotten the promises that he made? And perhaps then the deeper question under that, while everyone is peaceful and happy, Is there any difference in being one of God's people at all? You see, despite returning from exile, as they experience this life that isn't as satisfying as they had hoped, the question is to God, how long is this going to continue? And this question of how long will there be this disparity between what you've promised and what I'm experiencing is a question that all of us navigate life with something that followers of Jesus can relate to right now when those who hurt us directly remain happy when those who mock God prosper when those who are deceptive are able to evade justice lord how long are you going to allow this to occur and so the horses observe peace now now peace is something that humanity desires Let's make the world a happy place. Let's just try and get along together. And now it seems desirable and noble thing to aspire to, doesn't it? That we're all just at peace, that we're all happy. But often it's just sort of like a bad paint job trying to cover up some deeper problems. As you know, Helena and I have been looking at houses this probably past year, and one of these places we're serious at looking at, we've got a friend come in who's a building certifier, and we're a bit concerned about some water And he went into this other room and he's like, pulls this wardrobe out. He's like, yeah, (laughs) there's major water damage there. But, you know, they tried to sort of cover it up with a lick of paint, jam a wardrobe in front of it and hope that no one would know the difference. And so is with this idea of pursuing peace for peace's sake that we think we can sort of just look over these injustices and infractions that lie beneath the surface. You see this image of horses going and observing peace. It could be a prophecy for Sydney today. We live in one of the most peaceful cities, really, not just in the current global environment, perhaps even in the, in the history of the world. But you don't have to scratch too deep beneath the surface to, to realise that there's a whole range of hurt and pain, whether it's the odd sort of biking war that gets out of control or the domestic violence that becomes apparent, human trafficking that is so pervasive across our city, financial fraud, political corruption, family estrangements. Sure, it seems like people on the surface are getting away with whatever they want, posting social media photos with them, happy, good-looking, and wealthy, but surface-level peace Doesn't assume God's approval. And and so the lament for God's people seems to be these Persians are just getting away with whatever they want. We are experiencing a distance of relationship as a result of our ancestors' sin. God, where are you in this? How long is this going to continue? When will justice prevail? If we think about this generation, they were born into punishment. They were raised in exile. And sure, the Persians were used as part of God's plan to overthrow the Babylonians, and it has improved the fortunes of God's people somewhat. But the Persians are ignoring God. They're defying him. They're living as they please. How long will God allow that to go unpunished? And so God's people here are disappointed. They're frustrated. And it seems like the angel in the vision relates to that experience. It's the angel who says, how long will God withhold mercy for his people? Now, Now, what is mercy? Well, it's compassion towards someone who's wronged you, isn't it? It's not exercising punishment that's within your rights to bring. But what does it mean to withhold mercy? Have you ever experienced that? Well, isn't it when you punish someone for what they've done, whether it's giving them the silent treatment, stonewalling them, ghosting them, holding bitterness, cutting them off? Life without mercy... It's pretty unpleasant, isn't it? And it's not because we deserve mercy, (laughs) but because we sin so much that when people aren't merciful towards us, people whom we care about, then we have this horrific experience of living, reaping the consequences of our actions. And so when you've hurt someone, when you have obviously wronged them and they don't want a bar of you, They don't want to engage with you at all. They don't want to even consider walking down the long path of reconciliation as they withhold mercy. Isn't it us who often cry out, how long are you gonna keep this up? God's people have been experiencing judgment through exile. It was punishment for disloyalty towards God. They had rejected God in practice, so he had departed from them. They've reaped what they have sown, and now they lament. When, Lord, when is this going to end? When will these nations who currently rule us and reject you, when will they have a turn at receiving their just deserts? It's a lament, it's a cry for their despair to end. And it's ultimately a plea to God to reverse things, to bring about change, to bring about the restoration that you promised to bring. And so how does God respond to this lament of the angel? Well, verse 13, God responds with kind and comforting words. That this comes through the interpreting angel direct to Zechariah. And so, in the face of struggle and disappointment, what does God do? He brings comfort and he speaks kindly. He's not a stoic God. Just, Just harden up a little bit more. He's not very clinical in his disposition, he's not even abstract in the way that his posture is towards his people. God responds to lament with kind and comforting words. Pretty reassuring, isn't it? That that's the heart of God toward his people. But thankfully, it's not just kind and comforting words. God is a God who acts. And so verse 16, he says, I will return with mercy. God's promise would be that restoration would occur. The temple, which becomes so central in the age of Zechariah, will be rebuilt. The surveyors will come in and and measure. God will claim and rebuild what's rightfully his. He will dwell amongst his people and his reign will occur. And the reason that God will act is what we see in verses 14 and 15. Firstly, I will return because I'm jealous for Jerusalem. That's interesting. We had a good discussion about this on Thursday night. This is a good jealousy. Like a a spouse would have in a strong marriage. You know, there sort of might be a season when your spouse is sort of uh, working a lot and you're sort of jealous for the amount of time that their work colleagues just sort of get to be around them. You, You love this person. You'd want to spend more time than you currently are with them. That's a good jealousy. It flows from a commitment and the exclusiveness of the relationship. God is jealous to protect the unique bond that he has with his people. In fact, it was jealousy that he wouldn't allow their affections and their worship to be diluted or shared with other gods that caused him to bring about the judgment and send them into exile And now it's the same jealousy, this good jealousy, that drives him back to return. God won't abandon his people or his promise because his jealousy for them compels him to act. And the second reason that he'll return, he says, that he is angry. His anger has increased against sin and injustice. Whilst Assyria, Babylon and Persia had been instruments to bring judgment on God's people for their sin, they have overstepped the mark. Uh, Isaiah speaks about them sort of growing to be nations without mercy, that they're arrogant, that they're proud. And although the horses survey them, looking quite secure with the status quo, from God's perspective, they've gone one step too far. His anger has moved from a little to a lot and he will return and their fortunes will be reversed. Verse 17. See, the great reversal for God's people is that now their towns will overflow with prosperity. The Lord will comfort and choose. God's house will be rebuilt. It will signify to all his worthiness as the one to be worshipped above all. And this language is prosperity in bucket loads. Uh, Helena's family live on the Murray River, and uh, it's interesting that the whole Murray Basin uh, farming community depends on the flow of that river. When the river is overflowing, it means that those who have water rights, whose whole livelihood, their agriculture depends on it, they have full access. They get 100% of the water, and so their crops, they grow and they flourish. That the farmers who are able to fill their dams from that river mean that their livestock can be fed and nutritious. It's a picture of restoration that will be God's people's experience when He returns. And so, thus ends the first vision. And it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? God is going to act. He's jealous for His people, He's angry towards injustice. But the questions are when is it going to happen? How will it come about and what should we expect? And so vision two starts to deal with the how and the what. And the vision here begins with four horns. Four is a symbolic in the Old Testament of completeness and a universal coverage. Horns often are used in the Old Testament as a metaphor for power. And so it seems like the symbolic nature of mighty nations who, you know, it could be Assyria, Babylon, Media and Persia, but probably more symbolic of just the general worldly powers, these stronghold nations will face consequences. And so these horns, whether it's uh, acknowledging the present reality for Israel or it's retrospective referring to the past, are now going to face four craftsmen, the tradesmen, and they're coming to restore. And how they'll begin the restoration is as good most restorations begin with a good old demolition. It says that the four tradesmen, the four craftsmen are going to come to the four horns and terrify them and throw them down. Now, it's unclear exactly who the immediate craftsmen are. It could be retrospectively speaking about how Persia overcome Babylon it could be predictive about those who would eventually overthrow the Persians. But I think Zechariah's concern is about what they're coming to do in verse 20. And what they're coming to do is to terrify and to throw down. And I think the message from this second vision is that no empire will last. And, and so the vision paints a picture of how God is going to respond To the cries of his people. How long? Well, you can expect that there will be a reversal, and the reversal's going to come in unexpected ways. You see, these nations, these horns of strength, political force, economic power, they will face destruction. They have overstepped the mark They cannot deny and reject God forever without having to face consequences for their actions. And the very means that these four horns will be overcome is through these craftsmen. And now I think there's there's many levels here. Initially, God's people are in the process of rebuilding the temple. To rebuild the temple, you need tradesmen. The, The reversal occurs through, firstly, the rebuilding of the temple but that's a very understated and, and um, incomplete way. Uh, the reports of this second rebuild of the temple was that even when it was completed, it was quite underwhelming compared with the past. But it's not really about this physical rebuild of the temple in Jerusalem. This wasn't going to be the ultimate return of God. God would return with mercy and overthrow the strongholds and it would be, again, with someone who carries the tools. Of course, this is alluding to Jesus, the carpenter, the son of Joseph, who overthrows the opposition, the great powers of this world, not through military force or strategic attacks, but he comes and dwells among this busted and broken world. And the temple isn't just the structure that was rebuilt in Jerusalem, it's in fact his body, which is destroyed but raised up again in three days. And so Jesus is in the business of building a, a temple that no hands could make. And then there's this picture that Jesus says, "Those who, who come to him in faith, their body becomes the temple of the living God." And so there's this progression of the great reversal, how God is going to deal with the oppressive forces against him is he's going to rebuild a new structure, a people who will last, who will be his and whom he will dwell within. And so those who are followers of Jesus are the very temple of the Holy Spirit. We read in the New Testament that we are being built up into a royal priesthood building one another up, building ourselves on the cornerstone that is Jesus. This is the great reversal that God is doing. His return that brings justice on sin. It's an affirmation that God returns with mercy. He returned with mercy when he came and dwelt through Jesus. And it's through Jesus' death that the way is made for those to return to him. As we come to him in repentance, in crying out that we need his mercy, we are guilty, admitting that we are unworthy. And then as we trust in the mercy that he has given in of himself, we now become the very dwelling place of God. And so we live now in this time where we hold on to the promises made and look forward to the fulfilment that is yet to come. It's sort of this now but not yet rhythm. Uh, The kids are doing it in kids' church. They're going to sing to us in in a few weeks. This now but not yet. The not yet is the full restoration. You know, two of my neighbours right now have got no back to their houses the guy over my back fence has had a knockdown for three weeks, but across the road, they demolished the back of their house at Christmas last year and haven't been able to rebuild it. They're waiting for things to be fulfilled, and in the moment, there's a whole lot of uncomfortableness and despair and frustration. And so too now, as we wait for the complete restoration, we can expect that we'll look around at a society that looks very safe... And secure, where there are many in this world who go about free and easy without a care in God, and they seem to be getting along just fine, don't they? In the face of experiencing and observing that, we are invited to trust that God is an absent, that His mercy has been demonstrated, that now is the opportunity for rescue. But without us acknowledging our need, turning to God in repentance and faith and retribution will occur and the smiles, no matter how good looking they are, they will disappear. But for those who have security because of their faith in Jesus, there is hope. But it doesn't mean that disappointment and despair won't be our present experience personal disappointments, at our failings, life in a broken world where where miscarriage is common, infertility is rife, loneliness hurts, where we'll have oppressive bosses, toxic work environments, fractured relationships, families that are at war with one another, where we'll live where there's generational inequality and no obvious solution. But our hope at that point... Is that this isn't the end? The restoration that God is bringing about just isn't yet complete. And so it's right for us, in the midst of disappointment and despair, to cry out for mercy. And the comfort that we have is that God responds to our cries with kind and comforting words. And the great promise that we have is that He is jealous, that good jealousy for His people, and He's angry towards those who just reject and oppose Him forever. The great news that we have to remind ourselves on and to share to this broken world is that God has returned with mercy. There is rescue through Jesus. And there is the hope of that future day when prosperity will just overflow. A comfort will be fully experienced And the security of knowing that we are chosen and loved by God is going to be undeniable. I thought I'd conclude with some words from Psalm 6. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They'll turn back and suddenly be put to shame.